Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I am so happy and grateful to have Alan with us here today, who is one of Canada's most sought-after speakers when it comes to the topic of mental health and wellness. He stood on more than 500 stages and is recognized for his dynamic and captivating approach. Having persevered through his own mental health issues and substance use, Alan has learned valuable life lessons that have guided him on an incredible path of success. Alan left teaching after more than a decade to focus on speaking and writing on various topics related to mental health. He's a best-selling author of four books and his writing has been featured in numerous national magazines. Alan lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan with his wife, four boys, four dogs, and a tank of fish. Alan, welcome and thank you so much for being here, man. Jesse, honored. Thanks for having me. You know, as I was reading that, I thought maybe we could bring into our discussion what we were talking about before, about how, how do we, just so everybody knows, before we, were, before we started recording, Al and I were talking about the kind of our own evolution and being at a point where you're a little further down the road. And so you have these stories, you have these experiences, and you can stand and you can tell people and you can teach from that. But sometimes you feel like, do you feel like you start to lose touch with the beginning? You know, what it was like to start. And, I, you know, I, I was sharing with you, Al, that that's one of the things that definitely keeps me up at night or gets me up early. When you, like, when you wrestle with that, when you contemplate on that, where does it usually take you? Like, what comes up for you with it? What comes up is pain and gratitude, I guess, Jesse. I think Mm. it's important for me to remember where I was, where I am, and also, I guess, where I want to go. Sometimes, just even through all these interviews or conversations, it takes me back to where I was. And obviously, a lot of those memories surface. And I can just remember fighting, like fighting so hard. I used to always say, one day, one day, I'm not going to have to fight so hard. And in fact, I moved... 11 times in a span of six years and every place that I moved I would take this tiny little picture and under it it said no matter how long the night the dawn will break and I thought that's it that's hope and there's just so much um yeah pain I guess like if somebody could have told me in some of those darkest moments, hey, Al, you, you keep fighting because one day you're going to have a home, not a house. One day you're going to have a beautiful wife. You're going to have four healthy kids. I mean, that was just so off the... Like I, I could never have grabbed that. But I always did believe that there was something greater that had to come from all of the hell. And I think that our... I don't know, call them demons or challenges, whatever, can evolve into our greatest teachers if we allow that to happen. And the key thing, Jesse, I think, is if we do the work. When you were, oops, this thing, oh, there we go. When you were in those moments, those painful places, and I, you know, from my own journey, I can literally remember times of being on my knees praying to God that I would just go to sleep and not wake up at times because it just seems so like the pain I would sit with at those times 
was so intense and it felt so consuming and it did it almost felt so void of hope even though I was hearing you talk and I'm thinking back to some of those moments there was like this memory of even though I felt there was no hope I knew there was still and I'm wondering I guess there's two questions to this based off of what you said number one when you found yourself in those painful places was there anything that you did specifically to help pull yourself out that people who might be there could help replicate that and number two, how did you how did you hone in on the knowing? How did you hone in on that knowing? Meaning, how did you keep, I guess, how did you stay honest with yourself with that? Because when I would be in those places and I knew that was there, I would find myself also wanting to almost lie to myself about it. And there would be this other voice that would try to almost manipulate me out of believing that sense of knowing that I already knew to be true. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, so for me, I think there was always something greater at play that helped keep me vertical. And I think that I always bought into this fact as well, that there was this resiliency that existed in everyone. And, and actually, that's what inspired this new clothing line that we're starting, this Born Resilient, because that was probably my saving grace. And if I even now reflect back, it's, it's like as, as kids, we come into this world with this fighting spirit, right? We, we fight for that first breath. If somebody were ever to choke us, we would fight. Uh, someone puts their head underwater, we fight. And so I think I always bought into that. And I always had some kind of a connection with a, a higher power that there, there has to be some purpose. There has to be some meaning to this madness. And I didn't always buy in. But any time that I was maybe at that proverbial fork in the road where I was ready to check out, it's one of those things, you know, maybe the phone rings and somebody just says the right thing that you need at that time. Or there are numerous people that just for whatever reason would, would pull me aside and say something that gave me a little more hope. Or I can actually remember this one time. I mean, I was knocking on death's door with this is about the time where I was given a month to live if I didn't change what I was doing. And my life was just fueled with uh, alcohol and gambling and my body shutting down and I'm having seizures and I'm not eating. And, and I remember coming home to this apartment and I see this 10 year old boy who's scavenging for food and he's crawling in and out of this dumpster. Now that was actually one of those things that I remember because I thought it's perspective, isn't it? It's like, I thought to myself, okay, what do I want to do with this situation? And, and really, if you want something different, you have to do something different. And there are all those little moments where I was like, okay, okay. You know, I'm, I thought I was almost done. No, got a bit more gas, more fuel. And, and it was always kind of two steps forward, one back. And I think the other thing is I understood the necessity of reaching out, even though it was really, really hard for me to ask for help. I ended up seeing almost 30 different mental health professionals. Wow. And I think I, I always took something from some of them. Uh, I wasn't always honest. Sometimes in hindsight, I think I just said what I thought they wanted to hear. But uh, yeah, I think it goes back to what I said before. I, I learned that if, that if I wanted to achieve any element of peace, I had to be willing to do the work. There was something you said in there, Al, that really struck a chord with me. 
going back to this, trying to remember what it was like in the beginning and then having that perspective to be able to communicate from, you know, I realized like I can talk to you and you're someone who I feel like I could share my deepest circuit secrets with that I could cry with. I could be angry with, I could laugh with, I could do all of that within three different sentences, mm. not be judged and be loved and accepted for it. And I think that's such a, and I, I sometimes take that for granted because that I feel like is just a normal interaction and, and it may be some of the people I attract in my life and vice versa. And then sometimes I'll step back and look at some of my male friends, friends who I grew up with, friends who have been a part of my life for a long time, friends who I see struggling. And they're not there. They're not even like a fraction of a way there. And for them to even open up and to say something, to talk about it, to acknowledge it, it's almost like this you know, they would rather, as painful as they know the behaviors are that are harming them, they'd rather just stick with the behavior because it almost seems in those moments that the alternative of being vulnerable, of asking for help, is all the more painful. Why is it so you know, damn hard for guys to, to make that ask, to, to allow themselves to be, to be vulnerable? Is it is it like this wrestling of their masculinity or what they're taught masculinity is supposed to be? What is it? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. I, I actually had a, an interview with radio station this morning. We had this exact same conversation because we're not talking, trying to break down a few years here. We're trying to, we're, we're trying to break down generations. And mm -hmm. I think that as boys, we're always looking up to the men in our lives, always. And if men cannot express emotions, be vulnerable, if kids can't see these types of behaviors being modeled, like asking for help or shedding a tear, then why would the kids? They wouldn't. And so I think that as men in particular, we're trying to break down all these scripts. And I think that our greatest barrier is always ourself. I think that what we think is going to happen will actually rarely happen. And I found this to be true in, in the last book that I wrote where I interviewed all these men on topics of mental health and their fears were always the same, that they were going to be perceived as weak, as lesser mm. than, their reputation would be shot in their workplace. And what happened is once they finally had the courage to share some of their challenges, it was the complete opposite. In fact, they felt liberated, they felt free, they didn't have to wear the mask anymore. and they were met with compassion. And so I think that we just have to take a risk. As men, we just have to ask ourselves the question, am I happy? Uh, and I had, a, I had a professor who actually basically put the ball in my court, put me at that fork of the road, and he said, are you happy? No, I'm not happy. <laughs> and he, he said, what are you going to do about it? And he understood that we all want power and we all want control. So he totally put the ball in my court and then he gave me resources. And I realized at that moment that it was up to me to access the resources. And I think that, you know, that this is, this is kind of what I'm seeing more and more men are taking the resources. Then they're giving themselves permission to be vulnerable. They're sharing their stories and nothing 
nothing will break down stereotypes or stigma like stories. And then mm. when this can be modeled, the next generation says, huh, okay, that, that wasn't so bad. Maybe if they can do it, I can do it. And then mm. we're moving. Do you find that there's a running story that men who are able to start to tap into the resources will adopt or embrace that gets them to the place where they're able to take on those resources, to accept them, to receive them? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I do. Yeah. What about you? Why? Well, so I was curious. Is like, is there? Do you find that thematic though? Is there like one that continually keeps popping up that you've seen over and over with? Like, it's like these story or one of these stories that gets because I can imagine with the conflict of stories, right? Stories are so they're so beautiful for transformation, and they're so they're also in some ways they can be depending on the story. It can be shackling to the old belief system, and you know, I, when I look at stories, I look at it sometimes as it's like the, the, the old medieval duels where it's the jousting matches coming at one another and which one's gonna, which one's gonna win. And I find that there, there are, seems to be thematic stories that we'll tell ourselves as men about why we'll stay in that place, whether it's a, a challenge to our masculinity whether it means we'll be weak, well, we're, we're not problem solvers, we're not, whatever it is. Perhaps too, I think for me, one of the ones that always held me back was, if I didn't do this, if I did this, it would be replicating the challenges my parents went through or the mistakes my parents made. And so I'm wondering then on the flip side of it, are you seeing a consistency in certain types of stories or certain themes of stories that are helping people have that kind of breakthrough fork in the road moment of, oh, wait, it's okay for me to grab onto these resources. It's okay for me to ask for help. And if there is, what, what is that story or stories that you see are the most impactful for helping people to get there? I don't know, Jesse. I think it, that, that just speaks to the power of the story because it's so different for everyone. Mm -hmm. But the more that we can read and hear people's lived experiences, the more we have an opportunity to grab onto different ideas. And I think that, uh, there's going to be things in people's stories that we can just be like, yep, me too. I get that. And we, like for me, as soon as I got myself into a bipolar support group, I got myself into Gamblers Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 step program, for example, I never go to work a program as much as I go to be understood. Because mm -hmm. as I sit there and I can listen to people's stories, I think back to where I was, I don't know about you, but I didn't, I didn't ever want to be fixed. I just wanted to be seen, heard, and understood. So the more that I can surround myself with people's stories, the greater opportunity I'm going to have to fill that. Being a father of four, Al, <laughs> I'm wondering, is there, what is, is there a story generationally that you have shifted that you tell your kids now that's a that's a new story or a different story than you were told or that you told yourself when you were a kid or you were their age yeah you know what i when my kid so so i was three months sober by the way when i moved in with 
my girlfriend at the time and her two boys. So I have two beautiful stepsons who always just loved me for me. And I think that was one of the best gifts that I've ever received because that was at a time when I always felt like I had to wear the mask. And then um, when I had my first biological kid and I see this little soul, I think there was, um, they're so impressionable, aren't they? You know, and I, 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 saw, I see an innocence and I guess there's a lot of sadness for me because I know that a lot of my innocence was taken away through things like sexual abuse. And um, so, so there was also a, a, a resurfacing of all this pain. But I guess one of the scripts that my wife and I really tried to break is, is to talk openly and honestly about feelings. I listen to the conversations that my kids have with my wife and I'm just awestruck, you know, that they can even say something like, today I'm feeling sad. And, yeah. and, then, to, and then to just be heard and then to receive some tools to start to understand energy. I mean, I was raised in a black, white Mennonite village where it was just scripture and, you know, the, the messages were clear. You, you drink before uh, or if you drink or do drugs. You go to hell if you if you have sex for marriage you go to hell so i had to sign chastity cards and and it you know there are lots of wonderful values that i learned but there are things that i felt were missing and so in terms of your question you know what we're now doing i think the number one thing is we're just helping them to have a voice because i felt like i didn't have a voice i mm. i didn't know how to articulate my pain so I turned to self-injurious behaviors. I turned to drugs, alcohol. I tried to numb. I tried to escape. And then I think, I think just at a subconscious level, a lot of it was like, do you see me now? You know, I, I, I didn't know how to talk about my pain. So I'm going to show you. And um, I don't want my kids to ever have to go through that. I, and, and, you know, I'm definitely not bashing my parents. They obviously did the best that they could. They loved me. They, they are and were wonderful. I just know that for my wife and I, the number one thing we try to do is allow them to feel and that we take the time to listen and that we give them resources. Man, I think that's such an incredible thing. You know, I'm often, I often find myself in awe. I'm not a parent. And I'm often find myself most awed by parents who seem to hold that space to, and, and please correct me if this doesn't sound, I'm not saying right or wrong either, but maybe this isn't the right, right or proper way to state it. But I'm often found myself in awe of parents who find themselves in those spaces of, of, of almost parenting less and empowering more. Hmm. You know, it's like, I think I was raised in a much more in that kind of traditional parenting role where it was, here's the family's not even values. We never talked about values or belief systems, but it was right or wrong was kind of established there. It wasn't so much the discussions of, you know, what do you think of this? How do you feel about this? And we didn't, we didn't do the dinner table conversations or anything like that. And again, this isn't knocking on my parents. I know they both same as yours did the best they could and loved me, but I'm often so, and maybe the part of the awestruckness comes from it is because I see, I think back to my own journey, going back to that notion or beginnings, and often will wonder sometimes what would what would a childhood been like? What would my journey have been like had I had those kinds of conversations as a kid? Had I had 
the, the opportunity to discuss what was on my heart, what I was thinking, and have it be a place where it wasn't, there wasn't a judgment or there wasn't a, well, this is right, this is wrong. This is just what you're thinking. This is just what I'm feeling. Now, here's some resources of how we can process that. No doubt. Like, Jesse, I think about, <clears throat> I think it was last week, my, my one son, um, he's 10, and he said, he's just struggling. And he says, you know what, Dad? I know that you understand me because you have some of the same challenges as I do. And, oh, I thought, like, what, what would that have done for me as a kid? If I even knew that somebody around me, one person, never mind my father, one person just had some of the same struggles with thoughts, with impulsivity, whatever it is, with sadness. Um, wow, I think that that just right there would have negated and wiped away so much uh, I always thought there's something wrong with me, right? And I hear that from a lot of men and, and I, I was always afraid to go here. I hated my yeah. thoughts. I didn't want to be with my thoughts. I had no relationship with myself because I didn't know how to be with myself. So I did everything to always stay out here to live outside of myself. And I think that that, that right there is just a game changer when, when it can be modeled. And I felt that when you said that. Uh, Dad, I know you understand me. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I think felt that deep down inside. Hmm. Do you, do you find, do you find out? I feel like so, and I look at my childhood dynamics, I desperately wanted to, I desperately wanted to be loved and have some sort of bonding relationship with my dad. But at the same time, I desperately wanted to please my mom and make her feel happy. Hmm. And so much of my childhood seemed like it played in that kind of dynamic where, and to be honest, like I felt like my, my relationship with my father, you know, it wasn't that it was bad, but it was never great. And it didn't really get, it wasn't until he passed away that I really felt like I started to understand him. Like I allowed hmm. myself to start to understand him. When you're looking at mental health, and especially for men, do you find that that dynamics is an often like a theme or contributor to it? Is that the desire for that bond with that, that male bond or like the pleasing, like the maternal feminine pleasing? Is that, is, are those common things that show up with it? And if so, like, how do we invite how do we be able to invite that conversation with our friends, with our peer groups to allow for that to be a, a nurturing and thoughtful conversation where they can feel safe and talk about it? So I think every child will enter into this world and, and, and the, the kid goes like this. I just hope that somebody loves me, right? Because we all have this innate need to be loved and to belong. And we will fight for that till the day that we die. And should there be strains in those relationships, we'll fight even harder. Mm -hmm. And if we can't get that from the family system, we're gonna look outside the family system to get it, or we're gonna seek it in unhealthy ways, which, which I did for years. And I think that at the end of the day, all that we want is to be seen for who we are, to be loved for who we are. And when I, when I think about my interaction with kids, I mean, I had no idea how to play. 
I was so emotionally blocked. And then all of a sudden I'm around kids, my kids, and they gave me permission to play. But what they also did is they just loved me for, for me, like I said before. And so to create an environment with our friends where we can BS and we can talk a bit, but, but to go to those places, like what we're doing, Jesse, where it just is what it is. We're not, we're not doing this to impress anyone. We're just having an open, honest conversation about feelings, about emotions. And you know what? It feels pretty good. But yeah. if people, especially men, have never engaged in such, what is this? <laughs> right? Or all of a sudden, should they start to leak out of their face? What is that? But it's, it's again, it's modeling. It's starting the conversations. And, and if we can create an environment where people feel like they can just take off their mask and be themselves, be their authentic self. My God, what a gift. And, and that right there is, is the gift that one of the professors, when I was a student at the University of Alberta, gave me. Um, he, he helped me to just remove the mask and be myself. And that was one of the greatest gifts that anyone has ever given me. And it's because he created the space where he, he was just compassionate and, you know, I don't know what the numbers are. There's some line like 7% of the way that we communicate is verbal, right? 93% is nonverbal. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's about the, the, the facial expressions, the engagement, the tone. And I think if we set that up, it just, it just gives other people permission to go there. I think I read somewhere that the tattoo you have here is a very meaningful, very intentional tattoo. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing what the meaning is behind it. Sure. So, um, I never had a brother. Justin Andres was the closest thing to a brother that I've ever had. And we had very similar journeys. We both struggled with mental illness. We both struggled with addictions. And, um, and then I got the call that he died by suicide. And yeah, that one, that one rocked my world. I was also a counselor at the time who was trained in all this and I took it so personal. I, I can look back at that and I, you know, it's twisted, but I kind of feel like um, his suicide was one of the reasons that has allowed me to live because I saw what happens when somebody by suicide. I mean, I saw the effects and I felt the effects and he left me a note. I don't usually talk about this. Um, <clears throat> So I traced over his uh, initials, J-A, and I, I put them on my throat as a reminder that um, I'm done with the silence. You know, uh, I'm going to continue to talk about my own pain, not at a public level on stages or anything, but I'm going to reach out for support. And uh, it was, it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily about honoring him, but it's like making sure that I'm going to put a voice to this for all those others who are suffering in silence. You know, like silence has never been the answer. It never will be the answer. And so um, I found the Phoenix 
which you know rise up from ashes and i feel there's no reason that i'm supposed to still be upright and vertical after the life that i've led and i'm not sure why why it was that i was saved repeatedly and he wasn't on the other hand i remember asking that same question to an elder um when i taught at this college uh i, I remember saying to her jesse i said why him why why was I saved all the time? Why are other people saved and why was he not? And, and she says, Al, you have no right to ask that question because he has his journey and you have yours. And, and what I took away from that is sometimes we can get so wrapped up in other people's journeys that we lose out on the one that we were meant to lead. And I was consumed that first year. I was so consumed by this suicide. Um, I went down a dark path. And uh, I'll just share this one story because it's kind of interesting. On the one year anniversary of his passing, I just felt like I needed to, to connect with him. And the way that I felt it was best to do that was to drive out to his uh, gravesite. And uh, right before I left, my wife, Tanya, I'm out the door and she says, hang on, before you go, uh, I made something for you. So I go down to the basement and she has like a gift bag and she passes me this gift bag and I pull out a picture frame and it has all these pictures of Justin and I in it. So it's a beautiful keepsake. And I take this with me. I take it out to the gravesite. I drive a couple of hours. I sit on the grass and then I put this picture frame up just to reflect and immediately slam. So I carefully set it up again slams down. It's not even windy. And the third time that I put this picture frame up and it slams down, now I'm mad. And I remember I, I stood up and I opened my arms and I said, what's going on? And Jesse, I got an answer. I mean, I heard it clear as day. And what I heard was one word and it was enough. Enough. And I knew what that word meant. For me, it meant enough al you have spent so much time and so much energy thinking about maybe what what i could have done that i lost out on my journey you know it's what i was saying before i was so consumed and in that moment i was able to surrender a lot of that i could let go it's not that the pain stopped but i was no longer consumed man that's incredible I uh, so appreciate you sharing that and I appreciate you willing to go there with it, with us. There are so many parallels in what you shared and things that I've experienced and you know, I'll, I'll share more with you later on because I know we don't have a lot of time for it today, but I just thank you for that. I think that's so incredible, Al, that and I don't know if you're aware of this, but part of the reason I asked about that tattoo is I always find studying people so fascinating, going back to what you were saying earlier about the, you know, the psychology of communication and the 7% versus how much percentage is nonverbal. And I was noticing during our conversation, you would come up and you would touch quite often. Hmm. And I just, you know, now hearing that story, man, I think it's so beautiful because it's just like, you're communicating such a meaningful and necessary message and messages. And it's almost like 
you know, hearing that it's not just you, but it's you and your, your buddy too, mm. you know, and that he, it's just, it's not just you, but you two are like this dynamic duo right now, mm-hmm. you know, and I just, man, I, I, I really resonate with that. Thanks, Jesse. Yeah. So we only have time for a, one more question. I want to be respectful of your time. We're respectful of everybody else's time. People who are listening to this and they are, and I think this timing is quite timely. Timing is timely in the sense that we are, you know, the date of this recording, it's June 1st, 2020. And this is kind of when the world is coming out of this COVID, Corona, COVID-19. There's been a lot of kind of whispers of what's going to happen, what's going to transpire from mental health. I don't think we really have begun to address what will happen or do we even begin to imagine what's going to happen where in the U.S. I know we have this sky high unemployment. You have a, but then it's also this, this crossroads, this intersection of because of the disease, it's forced innovation much faster. So many of those people who have been furloughed, lost their jobs, they may not have that job going back because we'll have restrictions on even how we can consume what we were doing before return to that. In addition to going home and maybe not having the best home life dynamics, all these kinds of factors come out. So there's somebody who is the people who need to listen and watch this are listening and watching right now. And they are sitting with their own mental health and they are trying to figure out what is the next step I should take. You know, I've resonated with what Al said. I'm resonating with his story. I'm resonating with everything he shared. I just need a little guidance, a little flashlight to help me navigate down this dark path. If you could give them one step to take from today, you know, one thing that they could, as soon as they click off of here, they could do to, to start them or further them on that journey. What would that be? I think perhaps maybe just to start strengthening the relationship that they have with themselves. Mm-hmm. And how I used to do that is I would ask a few questions, simple questions like I want, I need, those are two very simple things and they're different. And it helped me to connect to this because like I said before, I used to just live outside of myself. I had no relationship with myself. If you start to ask some very simple questions about what you want in life, then that's a pretty good starting point. Like if you're not happy, then you have to do something different and nobody's going to do that for you, you know? And so it's, it's giving yourself permission to be vulnerable. What, what do you have to lose at the end of the day? If you're, if you're sitting in hell and you know that there's even the potential that if you make a call or if you text a friend that you can, can potentially confide in, there is risk, but there's also the potential for reward. And I, I recently finished this support group for other men who had been sexually abused. And uh, holy, I mean, that, that was freaking horrible to get into, you know, the, just, just to get into the room. But um, again, it's risk and reward. And the way that we finished our last group was, was three kind of questions. And maybe this is what I'll, I'll leave because it resonated for me. And it was, I had to answer three questions. And the first one was, I will start. So right now, what are you going to start doing? How would you finish that sentence? And the second one was, I will stop. How would you complete that one? 
And the last one was I will continue because there's things that you're doing that are working. Does that make sense? Yeah, man, totally. I, I love that. I think that's really powerful. And even as you were saying that, like I felt each of those. Mm. I love that you, I think that acknowledgement piece too, especially when we sometimes think that we're everything we do, it just seems like we keep turning rocks into bigger stones mm-hmm. to remind yourself that there is some gold. There is some gold in what you're doing. Everyone, my goodness, was this a journey today? <laughs> Relaunch, re-listen, take some notes. And really, you know, this is one of those ones that I encourage you to just feel, feel the experience as Al takes us through his journey of going through this place, coming from the dark, realizing that even in the darkest times that there was still this greater sense of knowing. If you or someone you love and know and care about might be in a darker time, they may very well be wrestling with that and wrestling with that feeling like it's so dark feeling maybe that it's suffocating the world's closing in, but they still have this knowing this little ray of light that's trying to pierce in reminding yourself the power of stories, the stories that you tell yourself, the stories that you tell others, the stories that you tell your children and how we're not only working through our own stories, but we're working through the generations of the stories that precede us. And that by changing our stories now, it will benefit the generations that will follow us too. The stories are a generational piece of it. The, gosh, the beautiful notion of the phoenix rising, Mm -hmm. whether you've lost a loved one to suicide or anything, or if you've just gone through a loss yourself and you find yourself struggling, remember that the phoenix always rises from the ashes. You know, it's from, it's from the, the remains of yesterday that seem so broken and charred that really some of the greatest things of today and tomorrow can rise from. And I think one of the things I resonate most with Al's story, and perhaps you do too, is it seems like some of the most painful times of his life are really the ones that have guided him into the life that he lives today. And perhaps some of those painful times in your life can become your guides too when the evolution of the story. To be able to allow yourself to be okay to ask for help to if you're a man watching this and acknowledging that there's a struggle with the masculinity, the strength, how we're perceived, will we be wrong? We don't know all the answers, but just to allow yourself to give yourself permission to ask for help and, and remember from two guys on here telling you, it's often when we start to ask for help that instead of meeting with resistance, we get met with compassion. And it's in that compassion that we can often start to really be able to make change. It's in the groups of going in and knowing and realizing that we're not alone, that perhaps we can truly begin our, our journey out of the light or out of the dark and into the light. Al, this has been absolutely incredible, man. Thank you so much for sharing. What a blessing this has been. I, I just so appreciate your presence, what you do in the world, how you show up, and your willingness to be here with us today. Thank you. Right back at you, Jesse. Much respect. Thank you. Absolutely. We will see you next time, everyone, on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to